Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. Welcome, One Broken Cog Podcast listeners, writer, communicator, thought leader, influencer, and now master of his own destiny. With great pleasure, I'd like to introduce you to my guest today, Tim Sprinkle. Tim came to us with this excerpt from his email, authored three books, writer for Wired, Entrepreneur Outside, etc., and run a profitable content agency. I know how to write for a living. I guess so. My focus is on the importance of quality and thoughtfulness in an oversaturated world. You can't just blast your message out there anymore. We all have to do better. Provocative stuff, Tim. Welcome. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, John. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. So, hey, take, take us through the arc of career of Tim Sprinkle. How did you get into writing? What happened? Did you have a good English teacher? Did you read a good article one day? T- t- tell us how that all happened and, and how you progressed, because you've got some very impressive organizations you've been affiliated with. Yeah, you want to know the, the truth of it? it wasn't my English teacher. It was my journalism teacher. Senior year of high school, I needed a elective credit, and I had some free time by schedule. I'm like, why not? Let's work for the paper. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, so the, the advisor for that paper was great. She was a great teacher. And I look back at clips that I wrote for that newspaper in 1994. And it's the same voice that I have right now, which is embarrassing on one level, but at the same time, it's like, you know what? It just, it just worked. And that's kind of, kind of how it started for me. And it's progressed and, um, you know, making a living as a writer is what a weird thing that every parent, you know, cringes at. And, I did it kind of the, the old fashioned way. I worked for a lot of um, B2B magazines, worked for a lot of some local news, newspapers. Uh, kind of worked my way up to some larger print publications back in the day when that was a thing uh, and found my way into digital media around 2000 or so and, and kind of worked my way up through the ranks of some startups. Again, more B2B stuff in the finance space. I ended up at Yahoo Finance for a long time and, and turned that into um, books and the stuff I'm doing now. So when, when, you, when you think back, um you know, you're sitting out on the front porch, the sun's coming down, you got a, you got a glass of wine or a glass of beer, and you're thinking about the past, as we all do at, at a certain point in our lives. What's a funny story you remember about, about coming up in the world of writing? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> it didn't seem all that funny at the time, but it's like, you know, getting slapped down by some early editors and some of the, the crap I was presenting is one of those things I think back and cringe. It's not so much funny. It's more like, you know, what was I thinking? kind of moment. Right. And I've got a bunch of like stories in, in my archives that are like, you know, they just wholesale changes because what I gave them was just terrible. And it's just, you know, it's a learning process. Sure it is. Sure it is. So, you know, cause a lot of people I don't think understand what writing for a living was like and what it is like today. So, so talk about what it was like, talk about honestly, cause I find this fascinating. Talk about this, the social structure where you fit, from a social perspective, because everybody has a preconceived notion, oh, this person's a fireman, oh, this person's a lawyer, this person's a doctor. So when you would, would go to a, a cocktail party or, or just meet your friends and they say, hey, Tim, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm a professional writer. What was that like? Um, it, well, I didn't get invited to a lot of parties, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> but it, it was really Uh-oh. more along the line. <laughs> back, in the, back in the day, and I say that, you know, I don't think, I think I'm all that old, but in the 90s, you know, it was an entrepreneurial endeavor. You know, you could go out and get a job, you know, look in the paper, get a job as a writer at a, you know, some organization, a lot of, non- I was in DC, so a lot of nonprofits, think tanks, things like that. Um, but I kind of took the, uh, the freelance path 
and it involved a lot of, you know, kind of social reach outs, emailing editors at the publications and saying, Hey, I'm available. Here's an idea. Um, and I learned to kind of pitch myself and that for me has turned out to be the most valuable skill that I didn't see coming. And I, a lot of the young writers I talk to now and I work with, you know, they don't understand the idea of pitching an idea or pitching your product. And it, it's very, you know, structural, as you know, it's very straightforward. You, you're essentially just saying, here's my idea. Here's why I'm the one to do it. Do you want it? Um, and a lot of people miss that these days. And for me, that's been a huge, huge help as, a, as an entrepreneur. It is, I mean, to a certain extent, um, and, and understand it, as you know, and as, as our listeners know, I am, I am through and through a salesperson. That's what I've done all my career. That's what I continue to do. I'm very proud to, to be a salesperson. It, it's all about the presentation. It's all about, it, it, I mean, the term we use, it's all about setting the table. So how can somebody be an effective writer these days if they don't understand the setup side? It's tough. I, I think that it's a real loss to not have the experience of working with somebody more experienced. I mean, that, you know, t a typical job, you come in as an inexperienced person, you work with uh, your boss, the expert, who kind of brings you up and teaches you what to do. And we have a lot of folks who just are kind of wandering in the dark right now, you know, posting on social media, doing a lot of different things that, you know, feel like maybe you're writing, but at the same time, you're really not. No oversight. It, it's it's tricky. And I think that it really comes down to wanting to, um, to find out what you don't know and reaching out. You have to be more proactive and reach out to people who have been kind of been down this path. Or is the younger generation, I know I'm stereotyping. So, so folks out there, please, I apologize, but is the younger generation that doesn't have that kind of a background, that kind of experience, um, are they less inquisitive? Oh, no, no. I, I think it's just, it's a different roadmap for them. Like it, you're doing something different. So you, it, you're not fitting into the same boxes that I fit into as a, a straight journalist. You know, I, I knew what I had to write. I knew how to, who I had to write it for and kind of how to do it. And when I, if it was a blue sky situation where I had the wide open door and I could do whatever I wanted, uh, it would be confusing. I think that there's enough options now for people can kind of fit into different boxes, but you have to be more proactive. Interesting. Okay. What was, what was uh, one of the most interesting articles you wrote back then? Jeez, back then. I did one, um, we had a, this is going to sound kind of funny in the age of COVID and pandemics and the world shutting down, but we uh, had a couple of um, DC, when, at the time, had like a security stuff going on. It was around September 11th, so a lot of things were getting shut down. One of the things that got shut down was a marathon, like the first uh, DC marathon, and I was kind of covering sports back in those days, and uh, the folks, it, they shut it down. I want to say the night before, maybe two days before, decided to cancel the whole race. And I was under contract with a sports magazine to cover it. So I was like, okay, fine, we'll just not do it. And it turned out like a bunch of the runners, like a couple hundred of them decided to do it anyway. And they showed up and had like this unofficial DC marathon. And they ended up running the original course just kind of on the sidewalk and things like that. It's a cool kind of like a fun underground thing. I wrote a fun story about it. It was a really, for me, it was a kind of a fun look into like a little subculture that I wouldn't get into otherwise. Oh, interesting. Uh, talk for, for a minute also, because I think this, this is important. Um, I, I remember, because I, I used to do photography back then, uh, to a certain extent, school-related and, and some other things, and, and you, you always were afforded a certain amount of respect and leeway um, in public places with, with the police if you, were, if you were cordial to them. And, and I think writers got the same thing. Reporters got the same thing, I should say. But now I, I get the sense that writers and reporters and photographers, they don't have any of that, especially some of the incidents we've been hearing about relative to Black Lives Matter protests and where reporters were either roughed up or shoved out of the way. Actually, there was a case where one or two of them were arrested, if I remember correctly. So talk to, talk to us about the, the change that you've seen and how that feels. 
Yeah, it, it used to be a lot more, like you said, a lot more cordial, a lot more official. I mean, it used to be that if you had a press pass, you you really got the access that that would afford, and that's not a thing anymore. I think it's it's because you know everyone has a phone, everyone has access to recording devices. It, it, it just being media isn't a unique thing anymore. I can say you know if I've got a blog, I can say a media uh, to some extent. Um, right. So that had that access has been lost, but. You know, I haven't been a reporter in the street for a number of years, so I haven't necessarily done this a ton. But I think that you know, having that limitation, having the box in place, doesn't end your story. It just makes it a little. You have to go out to go after it a different way, and you'll see examples of this from way back in the day or early on when I was kind of starting out. I spent months reading through back issues of Esquire and you know, every magazine from the 60s and 70s I could come across, and a lot of those guys didn't have access for X number of reasons. A famous, uh, I think it's an Esquire story about. Uh, Frank Sinatra didn't want to be, didn't want to do the interview, blew off the, blew off the writer. And so he, instead of like blowing the story, he spent like three or four days following Sinatra around like from the outside and like just kind of looking at kind of what his life was like really? as an outsider. And it's just, it's just like kind of a, taking a twist on the story and you have to be a little more creative like that. Well, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, but when you, when you do get roadblocks, I mean, as I say, I, I remember, um, when you do get Roblox, it just takes up a certain amount of your headspace that you really should be able to use for, for creative approaches. And now you do, you're being creative and trying to solve the problem of not having access. So exactly. like, yeah. Wait a minute, what are we doing? <laughs> so that, then you went on, it sounds like you went on to write some books. So, so talk to us about how you jumped from um, journalism from a, I would call it a short format articles to books, which really is a long format. And, and there is a difference in that. If you want to talk about what that difference is from, from the writer's perspective, that might be interesting. Yeah, it was painful. I'll tell you that. I mean, for me, a long form article at that point was a 3000 word magazine feature, which I can crank out all day long. I kind of understand that structure. And I remember sitting down when I sold my first book and I put together the pitch. I did all kinds of stuff for it. And it was great. We sold it. And I sat there for at least three or four days wondering what the hell have I done? You know, what have I, you know, what have I got myself into? I don't even know how to do this, you know, structurally. And I sat, sat down and had to outline the entire book pretty much and say, okay, you know, what, the way I would outline a shorter story is what I did at a book length. It was 120,000 words. I broke it up into 11 chapters. Each chapter needed to have 10 to 12 sections each around, you know, what I more or less did was I put it down in thousand word chunks and found ways to fill those little thousand word chunks with the content that I wanted to share. And that book, it was a uh, screw the Valley, which was a kind of a profile of startup ecosystems. Right. So I had a ton of interviews. I had a ton of different topics. I had a ton of different things I had to put in there. And I just really, every chapter was more or less 11 to 12,000 word chunks. And that was the way I could wrap my brain around it. And it, it kind of worked. I think that there's a, there's a limitation when you do it that way. And I'm kind of since, kind of evolved beyond that. But for me, it was a good starting place. But yeah, so, so for, the, for the listener's perspective, rattle off some numbers so they put things in perspective. What, what's a typical blog post word count wise? 500 to 1,000 words. 500 to 1,000. And you're writing 3,000 word articles. Mm -hmm. what's, a, what's a New Yorker article? So what's um, a Malcolm Gladwell article, 20 pages? What's that in word count? The big beefy ones, you're looking at 15 to 20,000 words. 15 to 20, and you mm -hmm. wrote 120,000. Yep. Every night, take year, every night for a year. Every night for a year. Every night for a year. I'm not going to say it was fun. I'm rewarding. Glad I did it. But man, I'm glad it's over. Then why did you do the next two? Because it was, there was more to tell of the, some of the stories that I was uncovering. It became, became one of those things where like, if I didn't have that project, I was like, okay, what am I doing now? Because there was a, a, almost a year and a half 
you know, both between turning the book into the publisher and actually publication, public, publishing the thing. Right. So I, I had nothing to do outside of my regular job and all my other stuff. That's crazy. So, yeah. So, so the, I'm assuming that the hardest part of that whole process is the discipline. Pretty much. Yeah. You're sitting down every night and just doing it. Yeah. I mean, you have to kind of scare yourself into submission. I mean, you, you signed a contract, you, you're doing this. You can't blow it. You, it's not like you get a ton of choices, chances in your life to, to write a book for a publisher. So it's it's a, a really important thing to make sure you come through on it. Yeah, that's very different than a self-published book, right? Where you just you just decide to write it and you you put it out there for people. Interesting. So talk about layup. All right. So you went from being an employee, um, you went from being a contractor, if you will, and decided, hey, I'm going to strike out on my own. It's about time. How, how did that decision happen? What was some of the impetus? Were the kids involved? Was there marriage involved? That kind of stuff. Because every time I find that there's like a kid or a marriage involved in a big decision in life. <laughs> <laughs> in this case, it goes back to that book I was just talking about. Though. Like, I traveled the country for about two years meeting with you know, entrepreneurs in different cities and like venture capitalists and all kinds of accelerator stuff and saw on the ground some, some of the things that were happening. And I left every one of those interviews going like, man, it, sounds like, you know, it seems like there's a lot here that could be interesting and you know, frankly kind of fun to do it this way. I'm meeting a ton of people who are like, they have real lives, they have wives and families and you know, they, they have a job that they created out of thin air. And that, that's cool. And that, that works way into my book and all that sort of thing. And it, it stuck with me a little bit. I've always kind of gravitated towards companies that were smaller or a little bit more nimble or just starting out, things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And for me, it was a, a little bit of an aha moment that like journalism is, is kind of dying. Uh, I think we're in a situation right now where things are just a mess. Uh, you know, the business side of it alone is not in great shape. And the, who knows what the, the whole public perception side of it, like it's a bad spot to be right now. I hate right. seeing you know folks like the thing that was happening when I was at Yahoo. You, know, you see folks in their fifties and early sixties getting laid off from these jobs for right. various reasons. It's not a good spot to be, and I didn't want to be in that spot. And I wanted to find a way to to do what I like to do the way I want to do it, um, and frankly, have a job that lasts longer than a year and a half. Yeah, no, it's I've talked to um, a number of journalists, news reporters, feature reporters, feature writers. Um, and it, it is amazing. And some of these, some of these folks have been in the industry for 20 years and it's just the, the doors keep shutting on them. And yeah. so what are we getting for news anymore? It's it, to me, it's, it's absolutely amazing. We've, we've completely destructed, uh, to me, independent thinking and independent judgment from the writer's perspective, which I find very, very unsettling. Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a huge loss. I mean, all that institutional knowledge and you've got someone who's covered, you know, one courthouse for their entire career and they know, you know, everything, all the ins and outs, that's just lost. You know, just getting interviews yeah. on social media. And the perspective that they give you, mm-hmm. which, which I find interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a whole different conversation. So what, is it, what does it take to position a person or a firm and then, and then talk about how that's changed over the years? Because really, at the end of the day, when you think about it, your job is... is as a journalist, as a writer, as a, as a book writer, as an article writer, is to position a notion to somebody and actually get them to consider a possibility that they might not have considered before. That really is the job of a writer, okay? So what does it take to position a person or a firm? Because really what you're doing right now in Layup is you're positioning financial institutions. So help, help the, the listeners understand what that's all about. It really comes down to, to finding ways to engage with people. And one of the things I like about kind of financial services in general is that there's a lot of 
stuff happening under the surface that most people don't think about. And that those are the interesting stories. Like, you know, you're a, a venture capitalist, you're talking to, you know, entrepreneurs who are working on the cutting edge of a lot of things that a lot of uh, the rest of us don't get to see. You know, there's a lot of uh, like agriculture, for example, a lot of technology that right now is kind of revolutionizing what happens on the farm and it's, you know, drone technology and some AI, some big data stuff, tracking. Most people are like, you know, they pick up a tomato at the store and that's the end of their relationship with what they're eating. And being able to connect that person at the store to the technology in the field that made that tomato possible is a fun, you know, fun story to tell. And for that, that's where you get the engagement. It's kind of matter to them, the reader at their level and kind of where they, you know, where they are, where they're interacting with you. And I find that, you know, for me as a, as a reporter back in the day, my job, a large part of my job was to spot those stories and pull that stuff out and, you know, find the right thing that was interesting, the right angle. And that's a, fun skill that sometimes is a little baffling to people, but you know, in the course of a conversation with somebody for half an hour, you can pull out some angles like that that are you know, worth exploring. And that's where you get the engagement. Give an example, give an example. Cause that, that is a, that is a very fascinating notion that you just proposed. Uh, yeah. So like, um, let's say one of my clients is a, um, is an engineering firm of all things. And they do some, some big data stuff and they want to put out essentially an op-ed in one of their industry publications that kind of positions them as a company doing interesting stuff. Um, and they really just want to talk about, you know, X, X, Y, and Z that they're building. Um, and so I sat down with the CEO for a while we discussed it, you know, pulled out all the stuff he wanted to talk about. And he dropped, honestly, like at the end of the conversation, just dropped the idea. And this was a few years ago um, of how he, he was going to be incorporating this 3d printer he had bought recently into kind of building some of the, stuff that they're going to use for this project. And this was before 3D, 3D printing became a thing really for manufacturing and, uh, and engineers really. It was more of a kind of a fun desktop thing. And he just like, because it was so common to him, he didn't think about it as, a, as something that would be interesting to people. And as soon as he mentioned that, that's all I wanted to talk about was like using the 3D printer to build parts for this thing, use it to kind of spec up stuff and use it for things that were beyond just like, you know, creating fun little toys. And that, you know, that sort of thing is kind of where you, if you're in it deeply, if you're really involved as a, on a real professional level, if you're really smart, you often miss those things because you're, right. you, it's common for you. It's not novel for you. And you're also not looking at the extensions. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's what I, I find fascinating about good writing is that, that, as I said before, good writing has the ability to alter your perspective or en enhance your perspective and allows you then to say, hey, wait a minute, if they can do that with this, what could I do or what are the other possibilities? Mm -hmm. and, and I just, I don't see enough of that quite from, well, I see it in short form. I see it more in articles quite a bit now. Actually, I'm very, very surprised at some of the things I'm seeing that are coming out. But, yeah, it's about uh, kind of connecting the dots and, and giving context that allows you to see that. Yeah, there's, there's a, a fellow that I know who's, um, who's involved in trying to fight plastic pollution by dumping plastics in the oceans. Hmm. It's an international issue and it's a huge issue. And the impact that it has on basically sea life, all right, whether it's plant or, or whether it's mammals, whatever it is, but the impact that it has and, and his ability to make the problem real hmm. and his ability to explain why you shouldn't just be, I don't really care, you should care. And there's a reason that you should care. I think hopefully he's going to do some really interesting things with it, but, but the way he writes about it is quite fascinating. Yeah. I think that like, obviously you or I will probably never see the great Pacific garbage patch, 
but I, I've heard enough about that to, to really humanize that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not out in the middle of the ocean, but I understand how big that thing is. I understand that this whole microplastics are a thing. I can, you know, see and understand the idea of like, you know, sea life sucking in those little particles and dying. All of that really kind of makes something that's super hazy and super, you know, not really personal to me, really kind of hit home. Yeah, yeah. So question for you. So is it, when, when you're writing for your clients, you are trying to change perspective, as we said. You are trying to show um, possibilities, if you will. Is there more of a focus on making the complex simple from a product or an idea perspective? Or is the notion more one of making the people involved more human so there's more relatability? It's a little bit of both. And really, it's more of kind of making the complex not simple, but understandable. And it comes down to breaking down kind of what, uh, what the product is and kind of what the message is they're trying to get across and it finding more engaging ways to talk about it. And let's say you're doing some sort of like AI based, you know, quant trade trading platform or something that frankly is just like, okay, this is something it's a high technology. I don't really get it. Um, but you're really talking about yeah. this in a, in a way that's like, you know, okay, this is what you use it for. And this is kind of what it looks like in action. This is the, the people who are doing this. This is how they think about the world and kind of how they see the trends that they're seeing. And that you, you might be ignoring, but like the machine is telling them X, Y, and Z and stuff like that, where it's, you kind of put a, I always say put a face on it and make it a re relatable thing to anybody who's just kind of coming in from the outside and doesn't have all those years of experience. Interesting. So on, on your website, um, layupcontent.com, I, I found a, a note as I'm scrolling down that I thought was uh, really interesting. I would like you to explain. And it says social proof isn't a guessing game. Talk about that if you will. Yeah. So social proof is pretty much just like, you know, you and I, you come across my, let's say an article that I write um, somewhere and, and, and dig into my archives and, and learn more about what I've been covering in that area. I've spent, let's say 20 years, covering the commodities markets. Here's all the stuff that I've been doing. Here's my thoughts on the market. Here's my daily, you know, Twitter feed of all of the things I'm sharing that's happening. That's the social proof. It's not necessarily social media, social proof, but it's, you know, kind of, if I say something to you, I've got the, you know, experience and the back backup to prove that I know what I'm talking about. And I think a lot of people walk into a room with a kind of a mindset of like, okay, I am Tim, the writer people will respect that and, and understand that when they, when they talk to me. And the truth is in this world, you have access to all of my archives. Everybody does. We all do. We all have, you know, a digital history going back probably 20 some odd years and you need to be able to live up to kind of what you're saying. And that's not an accident. That's not a, you know, geez, I hope like the stuff that I was posting 20 years ago makes sense to people who come across me now. You need to curate what you've got. You've got to you know, be posting things on a regular basis. You've got to be having active thoughts. You can't just sit on the sidelines and say, okay, you know, I'm the expert. Believe me. You've got to prove it every day. And that's when I say it's not a guessing game. It's, it's, it's so much a, you can't just do it once and walk away. It's a regular practice. So how, how much does, does the average, and I don't think you're really a consumer oriented writer. I think you're more a B2B writer. How much does the average business decision maker go in for a deep dive or do they just say, Oh God, this, this guy's written 30 articles or he's, he's mentioned here. So I must believe him. How deep do people actually go to, to look at the content and understand the context? 
to use an example, like uh, just an email campaign, for example, I run a lot of emails through, uh, through HubSpot and tools like that. And based on kind of the anecdotal research I've seen is that on average, we're looking at at least three, someone who gets one of our emails will click on at least three links in it if they're interested. The really engaged folks will. The folks who will pick up the phone and call and possibly right. buy, they're looking at at least three things at least twice. And that's where it comes down to like, you know, they, they, they get the email and they're intrigued. They think it's a cool idea. They click through your website. They look at a couple different pages. They come back later and do it again. Things like that where that's, you need to have enough there so it's not an empty hole. But you're, say, you're saying something else. You're saying it's not just it's not just the content that becomes important from a commercial perspective. What mm -hmm. becomes important is the way it's laid out, the way with, you present it. With laid out and also, yeah, the way you kind of put it together as a, as a larger thing. Like if you look at a, a, any author's website now, if they've got the book, that's great. You can read the book, but they've also have a regular, you know, kind of series of musings around the same topics of the book. So if you're interested in the book, you know, can, you can reach out to them and, and learn more coming from the same person around the same topics and dig in, dig in deeper. And you find that people who are willing to dig in deeper become, as a general rule, better customers, better potential like, you know, targets. And it's really about kind of building a relationship with someone you never meet. Um, you know, yeah. not even the, you and I having this connection, not even that. I mean, it's really just, a, you know, I'm just going to publish some stuff and have some thoughts out there. And the people who read this will never see me. I may never see them, but we have to have a connection somehow. And that's kind of how you build that. So we're here in, in November, early November, mid-November of 2020. COVID's been raging for a number of months. What's changed in 2020 from your perspective? Everyone's online. Every, the digital life is everything. The face-to-face -face meetings that could, who could have happened at you know, any conference or wherever are just are not happening, happening right now. So it's really easy to get kind of lost in that crowd. So how does, how does somebody break through what what's different about the way things get written the way things whether it's in in how long it is or the tone of it or where it gets presented how are you breaking through so if you think about like um to compare two different approaches to this uh let's say you are a, a company x and you've got a, a great blog and a great public presence and it's you know a lot of publishing stuff all, on a regular basis like so you're doing it every day and it's kind of light and fluffy but it gets out there it gets a lot of seo SEO juice and get you, get you some interest. That's one option. Company Y is doing it less frequently, but is, you know, let's say doing some webinar, a webinar series, a weekly webinar where they you know, dig into their process and talk about the market they're covering and what they're seeing, uh, doing some commentary type things on what's happening in the world, doing deeper dives on a less regular basis. You know, between these two companies, who do you think is, you know, possibly more engaged in what, you know, what you're looking for? If it's the same product. You know, one is clearly just trying to attract attention to their stuff. The other one is really trying to engage with people. And that feels more organic and it feels almost personal, uh, even on a digital platform, than you know, bringing your attention in, let's get on the phone call, and I'll try to sell you something. It feels less like a sale. Is there, is there enough actual evidence to indicate that that generates higher economic returns? It depends what you're selling. I mean, B2C, of course, you need more, obviously you need more eyeballs, you need more traffic. Yeah, you need more of that, yeah. If your ticket price is $50,000, you don't need quite as many you know, of those. And you need people who really care and who really are interested in going down that path with you. Yeah, it's interesting, especially, especially since you're in the financial services world where those things tend to be not something that most people want to spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean... I've, I've been I've been in insurance related businesses most of my life, and and I find 
insurance absolutely fascinating and, and that's why I never say that at a cocktail party because I get the weirdest looks and I don't get reinvited. Um, <laughs> but it, it is it is hard to make financial services products interesting to people even though they are so crucial. Yeah, exactly. How do you, how do you tackle it? I mean, it, re- it really comes down to knowing your audience and knowing kind of what interests them. I, I think, I'm sure you get as many of these emails as I do from your broker and like it's just, here's just some stuff, here's some noise that you're going to delete and ignore. But, you know, really the people who want to dig in are the ones you want to know. Like are the, you know, the thousand true fans type model where it's, you know, if you're selling something that's a little complex and a little inside baseball, most people are going to ignore it. But the 10 people who show up to your, you know, coffee event and really want to learn more are going to be one much better leads, much better, most likely investors. And two, you know, the kind of people who will stick around and bring their friends in too and introduce you on a more personal level, referral type stuff too. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So we, we are unquestionably, I mean, there's no, it's a cycle. We are going to be coming out of this thing, this COVID thing. Um, nobody knows if it's three months, six months, nine months, a year, but the indications are we'll start emerging out of this thing from a business perspective. We've already started to any, any advice for organizations as their audience tends to shift focus People will be going back to work. People will be commuting again. They'll be going back to offices to some extent. They'll be thinking differently. They won't be so um, inwardly focused. Any thoughts on what folks should be thinking about that are in the position to be sending messages out? I think it's, and you and I discussed this earlier, time to dig in with both hands and not pretend that, you know, you need to be cautious anymore. I think that you're right. People go back to the office. They get back to, you know, things are going to ramp back up. Um, And the folks that take steps now who, you know, can continue kind of having these conversations, building a platform to, to kind of present themselves the right way and just doubling and tripling down on that. This is the time to do it because there's a lot of people who are, I mean, again, things aren't great for some people. Uh, businesses have gone under. There's, you know, competitors are, have changed in the last six to 12 months. And for me and for Andrew, everybody. And I think that it's time to, if you want to go after, you know, kind of the idea of, stepping up your communications game, it's the time to do it because the competition isn't there yet. And they're going to take, let's say, six to eight months to catch up. And I, I think that if you're in a decent position to do it now, now's the time to get started because it takes a while to ramp up. That's interesting. So be proactive is what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So what would you, what would you, say, um, what would you say today to Tim Sprinkle 20 years ago, 25 years ago? What, what <laughs> advice would you give him? Don't become a professional writer. Um, no, no. I, you heard it first here, folks. <laughs> I think it's one of those deals where just trust your gut on some of this stuff. I look back to some of the things I did when I was 22 years old, 23 years old, kind of getting by, and I stuck with, you know, I, I knew I, I enjoyed writing. I knew I was pretty good at it. Um, I had some pretty positive feedback, but it wasn't easy. You know, this is not, that's the kind of thing you just dive in and all of a sudden it's working. You do your research, spend a lot of time like reading other people, spend a lot of time just kind of learning what the game is like and, and meeting people. And that stuff pays dividends. I mean, it took, honestly, it took me 20 years for the dividends, dividends to roll in. But it, I talk to people now who, you know, are surprised by the, the fact that I know how to, to pitch a book in four paragraphs and are surprised by the fact that I've read every, every article from X number of magazines from the last 40 years. And I'm kind of surprised by it too, but I just, I had no other option at the time. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to learn everything I can about this and let's do it right. It's amazing how many years it takes to become an overnight success. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. 
Tim, fascinating. Really appreciate you spending the time. Where can people find out more about you? Yeah, sure. The website is just layupcontent.com, and we've got a contact form on there. And tell people how you got the term, how you got the name Layup Content, because I see the basketball, but something else oh, yeah. is going on. Big basketball fan. Layup is the easy, the easy win, the easy shot. It, it's kind of the idea of playing small ball and doing it kind of the right way, it, rather than going for the big, uh, big three pointers and the grand slam type stuff to use baseball. Um, it's it's playing small and playing smart, and that's kind of what I like to to preach. But so, but that's what you're doing for your clients. It sounds like exactly. Yep, that's interesting business philosophy. Tim, thank you so much. Um, look forward to having another chat soon one of these days. But in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, enjoy the colder weather. <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate Take it. Take care. Bye-bye. It was great spending time with you today. Maybe you liked what you heard. Maybe we sparked some controversy. Maybe we got you excited. But hopefully we got you thinking. Hey, we want to hear from you. If the topic resonated with you, if you have a comment, or if you have an issue you're serious about fixing, reach out to us today. Hey, Brian, how can they get in touch with us? Great question, John. Best ways email. Email us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we're going to help you make small adjustments that's going to lead to major impacts in your business and your revenue.